Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. And I'm Whitney Lowe, and welcome to the Thinking Practitioner, where Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. Books of Discovery likes to say learning adventures start here, and they see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast and are proud to support our work knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. You can check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where Thinking Practitioner listeners can save 15% by entering the word thinking at checkout. So welcome everyone to The Thinking Practitioner. I'm delighted today to have my friend Susan Salvo with me. So welcome, Susan, to The Thinking Practitioner. Thank you so much, Whitney. I am delighted to be here. Great. Uh, I've been a big fan of yours for many, many years. Hmm. Decades, in fact. <laughs> right. Yeah. We do go back. We're getting, you know, we're all getting a lot older now, going back many decades and everything. Well, for those uh, listeners who are maybe new to your world, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're currently doing? Um, certainly. So um, I started my massage journey in the early 80s, I went to the New Mexico School of Natural Therapeutics in Albuquerque, New Mexico, graduated from there and came back to Louisiana, which is where I'm in currently. And I started uh, practicing and teaching and helped launch the uh, charter for the Louisiana chapter of the ANTA. And uh, did, held a couple of offices and then uh, started a school, the Louisiana Institute of Massage Therapy in Lake Charles, Louisiana, taught there for 25 years. During that 25-year portion of my career, that's when I started writing textbooks, probably in the mid-90s. Uh, the first contract was with W.B. Saunders, and uh, they were bought out by Elsevier uh, a few decades, well, about a decade later. Mm -hmm. And um, I finished a uh, master's in 2012, finished a doctorate in 2017, and um, currently- and can Let everybody know what your uh, master's and doctorate um, degrees were in there as well. Okay. So uh, my, uh, my master's was in inst uh, instructional uh, technology and educational leadership, and mm -hmm. then my doctorate is in educational leadership. Mm -hmm. I did a dissertation on factors that influence online success mm -hmm. in people of color. And that was a published dissertation. The joke is, what is a good dissertation? A done dissertation? Right. What's a good dissertation? <laughs> a published dissertation? Yeah. So I was able to uh, to get uh, that published. In fact, my I got my literature review published. I don't know if you know anything about that. But oh, so interesting. Academic yeah. publications. Yeah. And uh, then I started uh, working for the New Mexico School of Massage about three years ago and helped uh, launch their program mm -hmm. uh, because the school that I, my alma mater had closed mm -hmm. during COVID. And then now I'm in Lafayette, Louisiana, teaching for Unitech Training Academy. And all different, all the different schools have such different um, programs. So it's yeah. kind of fun for me to kind of navigate those different worlds. Uh, so I'm still writing, obviously, still teaching, still practicing. I have a small practice at a, a, a local spa in, in Lafayette, Louisiana. 
And uh, the only other thing I'm doing a lot, well, I do, I work with the Massage Therapy Foundation doing case report uh, evaluations. Uh, I work with NCBTMB, uh, AMTA. I just finished a online course for them on burnout. Fascinating. Oh, interesting. All research yeah. evidence-based stuff. And then uh, that should come out into this year, about two more months. And the only other thing I'm doing right now that's, uh, oh, and also working for the Federation, some course content uh, creation and then Emblex writing and review mm -hmm. items and uh, a lot of legal work. So I'm asked to give opinions about legal cases that involve massage therapy and right now, there's five cases I'm working on in five different states. So it's such an interesting career. Yeah, when you sort of going through the list of things that you're doing, and you said something like, that, "Well, the only other thing I'm doing is this," and <laughs> your plate's pretty full, I think, uh, of what's going on there. So, uh, I want to touch base on several things that you had mentioned there in your background, because I'm curious. You, you and I haven't, you know, known each other for a very, very long time, but I'm not sure if I've ever asked you this, like. What was your inspiration to start writing um, the textbooks um, and get going with that stuff? Because, you know, I know at the time when you first started doing that, we didn't have that many textbooks around in our field. Uh, was it just the the lack of those things around or what, what sort of drew you to, to starting to write? And had you written any before that? Well, I had written a little bit. So mm -hmm. uh, part of what I did after I got out of massage school was uh, I wanted to promote myself. I didn't have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So there was a local paper here called Lanya. It's mm -hmm. actually French for something extra. Mm -hmm. And what I would do is I would write an article for uh, the publication. And, and instead of getting paid, I would have an ad. So I started writing things about sports massage was really hot in mm -hmm. the 1980s. So I would do something on golf and something on tennis and something on swimming and something on running. Uh, I did a lot for Lake Area Runners, which is our uh, sporting group here. And then uh, after that, I was starting to teach and mm -hmm. publishers would call and say, you know, uh, actually publishers were uh, Williams and Wilkins. Again, they were late, later brought in a living cot. And they were the first one that contacted me. And it is so funny because I was already in working on my doc, I'm sorry, my bachelor's in education. So I'm mm -hmm. already thinking about principles. And before we had computers, uh, we were doing something with readability. And only one textbook was out at that time. And uh, I wasn't a big fan. And the only reason why I wasn't a big fan was because it was very difficult to read. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's odd that I'm a, a writer because I have a, a reading disability. So I really struggle with reading. So I read, I, I write for people who struggle with reading. Mm -hmm. And so I, when I was called by a publisher, they were saying, uh, well, if you could do a better job, show me. It's so like, okay. So I did two things. I wrote a prospectus. And uh, the second thing I did was I took the current book that was out there and I did a readability graph on it. And the way you, you do that is you take any passage, 100 word passage, and you count the number of syllables, and you count the number of sentences, mm -hmm. and you graph it. And then from that data, you can uh, extrapolate if, if this is the fifth grade, if this is the 10th grade, if this is the 12th grade. And the current book that we had out there was a 17-grade reading level. Wow. Huh. How many people do you know who go yeah. to massage school that have a master's? Yeah. So it was a master's level. level. So to me, the, the, the barriers we were already, uh, at, we were already exceeding mm -hmm. what the, the, the culture was in massage. Yeah. 
And then uh, there was a pub- another publication that came out called The Bottom Line. If you haven't seen it, you need to check it out. It's a little newsletter that comes out uh, twice a month. And it's written, um, I love the word parsimonious. It's written very lean. It's written very, uh, all extraneous words are removed. The reading level is appropriate for the average American, which is currently about ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, you know, give or take a few years. And so when I sent my proposal and I said, I'm, want, I'm going to make it almost like a soundbite. So, uh, and, and I also use what's called the bluff method, mm-hmm. bottom line up front. Which you know, is- you, I have to tell you, you told me that several years ago, and I have this piece of paper pasted on my wall that says bluff right up there because I thought that was so good. I really liked that. You know? and, and, and a person in the military told me that. And mm-hmm. so apparently it's one of their uh, ethos there. So uh, so when I gave the prospectus, I said, this is the current environment of the textbook industry. Went too high. Then it was, uh, we need, I get, and practicality. That mm-hmm. was really, really important to me. And integrity was also really important to me. Yeah. Uh, and accessibility. So lean, accessible. Um, oh, and then when I sent it in, there was other people competing for the same job. It, when the the person who was my supervisor basically will call me back, she says, you won, but you won because your uh, proposed TOC, Table of Contents, and the word she used was meat and potatoes. It was the mm-hmm. most basic, simple to understand, not a lot of, uh, at the t- time we were using the word airy-fairy. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a lot of energy work. It was just practical, knowledgeable information. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the very first book I wrote, the word kinesiology really wasn't used mm-hmm. like it is today. Uh, so my very first chapter was muscular nomenclature. Mm-hmm. Galatol yeah. nomenclature. And it just, it's been fun for me to watch the evolution of language over time, uh, even in textbooks. Yeah. So uh, the inspiration was we needed more good information um, that was accessible mm-hmm. to uh, a wide range of people. That was my big, and again, I just had a break. I was lucky. Yeah. Uh, right person, right time. In fact, when she said, we need a prospectus, I had to look up what a prospectus was. Mm-hmm. I had no clue. Yeah, right. And uh, but writing got better, and yeah. uh, and you probably know this being a writer yourself. It wasn't until my third edition that I, that sales really the, the tipping point, and yeah. uh, so that was when I realized, oh my god, this is this, this is serious. Yeah. I actually don't get a degree. Yeah, right. <laughs> so yeah. I, I did everything. I did backwards. So yeah. I got the variety, then I got the education. Yeah. Um, whole process has been phenomenal because uh, I get to rub shoulders with people like you, mm-hmm. uh, with people like Benny Vaughn, with yeah. people like uh, Celia Bucci and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Michelle Renee. And I just, it's because, because I wanted the book not just to be my voice. I want, I always have contributors come in and, and I know we're going to be talking hopefully about mentors at some point. You, I, I've had mentors in every single aspect of my career, except book writing. So what I had to rely on, and I was intentionally not looking at other books heavily because I didn't want to be influenced. I wanted right. to have something. Uh-huh. So I, because I was already in college, I drew heavy on the way history books and the way psychology books were formatted. Mm-hmm. This is another reason why you see in my books, you see a lot of quotes mm-hmm. from historical figures because of the history influence in, in my background. And you see a lot of biographical information. Mm-hmm. Because in psychology books, you they talked a lot about 
This is the people who really helped shape the profession. And I like that. Yeah. I wanted that feel to the textbook. So it, mm -hmm. it felt um, inclusive and it felt, it felt respected mm -hmm. to other cultures and other historical and uh, and history or history. Yeah. And I think that's, you did a great job with that too, in terms of getting the, you know, you're introducing the voices of many of the professions luminaries to the new students, which is a great service. And it's a wonderful process of the things that you're doing there. So I think that's really, it's been a great way that you've done it. I want to go back for a moment to something that you were saying earlier, because this, this idea struck me and I never had really thought about it this way before, but when you were talking about the readability issue, um, you know, as as uh, practitioners in our field of of manual therapy and massage and things like that, we don't have um, many of us don't have traditional academic degree training programs, and yet we're doing a lot of things and we're encouraging people to you know read medical textbooks and read medical journals and things like that, which are notoriously. Uh, poor in their readability levels. So I'm curious if you've had any like ideas or, um, you know, thoughts on like how to improve access to those kinds of things for people who have readability difficulties with some of the, you know, really heavy, intense, you know, science writing that's in a lot of those medical textbooks or journals. Uh, well, it is a struggle. And now we'll tell you a couple of stories about this. So when uh, I can remember being in my master's level education and our professor was reading us a uh, paper and I was watching the classroom and people were like, you know, and, and one person said, why is this so hard to understand? And, you know, why is it written for us? And then the teacher said, well, it's written for academics. Mm -hmm. And that really made me realize that academic papers is not written for the general public. It's written for academics. And then when I went through, this is a secret. Then when I went through my own uh, dissertation program, knowing that my background is vocational school. So you have to remember that. I'm an academic, but I, but I live in vocational school. So we had to have these seminars about how to write a dissertation. And they ask you, no, they don't ask you, they, part of what you're expected to do is write at a 16 grade level. Mm. And I already knew about grade level and how to, how to not do it and how to do it. Yeah. But I hated writing like that. And I hate reading a paper like that. So I actually didn't do it on purpose. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote mine at 11th grade reading level. And my professor's going, oh, this is the best paper I've ever read. I'm going, well, yeah, because you could read it. Yeah. So, uh, so that was one thing that I do. And another thing that I do is, um, we could talk about health literacy in a second, because I think that we need to touch on that. Uh, when I'm writing my textbooks, I intentionally use words that uh, are accessible. That's a mm -hmm. term I like to use a lot. Um, we're doing that a lot of the intellects, which I'm very, very excited about. And uh, and and health health literacy is basically a concept that if you're writing information for the general public, a pamphlet, a brochure, even an intake form, uh, you must write to the reading level of the average patient. Mm -hmm. And it's actually it has dropped one letter grade since COVID. So now we're at seventh. Oh grade mm -hmm. level for the average reader in the United States. Mm -hmm. So, um, and when I talk about documentation, like I did with when you were, I weren't at the Oregon meeting, uh, we touched on this concept. And if you Google health literacy, there is a way for you to look at, instead of using the word this ascertain, use the word no. Mm -hmm. And so you can go through your, all your papers and uh, find words that are not appropriate for your audience. Mm-hmm. And find better words. And yeah. uh, 
And we just did that with the Implex. Mm -hmm. So we're going back over, and I love this so much because it's it's about uh, accessibility. Yeah, and that way you're you're really uh, are you is the person taking the test? Are you grading them on their understanding of difficult terminology? And sometimes, and you've been you and I've been in uh, those meetings where it's it's SMEs, subject matter experts writing these items, but we always have to remember who the candidate is, and I mm -hmm. think sometimes that's been overlooked. Yeah. So we're going back and we're looking over every single Inblex question, different committees, and we're looking at every single word. And also we're shortening the sentences. So instead of having a paragraph now, we're trying to make it three lines mm -hmm. to get, again, bluff, to get the very essential things in an item. And then, then we're looking at each individual word. And, um, and I think it's going to improve pass rates. Yeah, that's really good uh, to hear because I think that's one of the the big challenges that happens for a lot of people in the test process. And then, of course, difficulty understanding that stuff leads to test anxiety. And then you start having, you know, uh, uncertainty about what you're doing. And then you become anxious about the the readability of those things that impacts your ability to think well and do well on those those exams. So that's that's great that you're that you're working on those things. I think that's very needed. So um, I want to also go back to seconds. There are so many things in your initial um bio discussion that we had and i've tried to make some notes here some things i wanted to go back to but you had mentioned also that you're doing a lot of work with uh legal cases as uh, expert witness and a lot of people i think don't even know that this whole thing exists of the whole process of of you know legal cases that that happen in the massage world and what happens you know how do you find expert witnesses tell me a little bit about how that came about of, of doing expert witnessing and what kind of things do you end up doing with these legal cases Okay, so let me tell you about my very first one. <clears throat> so it was a case actually in Lafayette where a massage therapist was injured in a car accident. And uh, the person who was working on the case, it was working with the insurance company, a medical, I mean, uh, uh, automobile insurance company. And they were saying, well, we have to look at, you can't do massage anymore. So I had to uh, discuss the physicality of massage. So uh, you know, from from a from a um, exertion standpoint, standing, mm -hmm. sitting, leaning over, so many clients a day, uh, stamina, all these things. And so, when I I never written an expert report before, I had nothing like no uh, template to look at. So at the time, my daughter was working for an attorney, and I said, "Give me an example of what one looks like." And so she gave me three, and uh, one medical, one physicist. Because, you know, like for certain car accidents, you need that physics part. And one was an accountant because sometimes an accountant has to calculate lost earnings and, you know, surgeries and medical and over lifespans. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so interesting how they put all these this data together. And uh, I read them. And the first thing that hit me was you have to establish your expertise in the very beginning. And I will tell you, years of experience is not enough because mm -hmm. the, Anyone yeah. who's been doing massage for 20, 30 years could call themselves an expert. What makes an expert an expert is the deepening of knowledge, systematically yeah. deepening knowledge. But one of the things stood out at me, and this was right about the time the NCBTMB was uh, struggling, and that's not a, the right word, but deciding what to do next, not do national certifications. What was the next thing we should do? And it was board certification. In every single one of those reports, that was part of their assertion of, of uh, I said that word, 
that was their desire to promote their uh, level of expertise was I'm board certified. And it was mm -hmm. like, I went, oh my gosh, this is the language attorneys and, and judges understand. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't get board certified fast enough. And it was the year that it came out, 2013, I believe. Mm -hmm. But um, so that was really important to me. So that was my very first one, but it taught me a lot. And that case, I was also deposed. That taught me a lot about depositions. Mm -hmm. So uh, then once you once you get a case, you're, I, you must be put on, don't, don't laugh, the word list serve, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think you put on a list serve or something because then I started being asked more often. And um, so, but what, what happens in massage is it's someone alleges, listen to the words carefully, that they've been injured. Uh, they could file a lawsuit for you. It doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. It just means now someone has got to look at the case and determine if you had the term that they use is substandard care. You did mm -hmm. not provide the standard of care, different in scope of practice. So usually both sides have their own experts. So it's kind of fun because it's not a big pool of us that do this. Yeah, so oftentimes right. I know the other side. Uh-huh. And sometimes you're working for the plaintiff and the plaintiff, I had to look this Latin word up, it means to complain. Mm -hmm. So it's the person who files a lawsuit. Oftentimes it's the client in, in the case of massage lawsuits. And then the defense is the person who allegedly caused the harm to the plaintiff. Mm -hmm. So and I've worked for both sides, about 50-50. And so uh, then you typically, you get the documents that you have to review and then you read the depositions of other of both sides. And sometimes they're they're giving depositions of not only the client, the therapist, but the bosses, the managers, the COE of the company, mm -hmm. depending on what they're trying to look for. And then you have to look at the facts and then determine if the, the uh, therapist did practice with the standard of care. And for a case to win, Three things have to happen. Number one, we have to establish what the standard of care is. So typically what I go to is I go, it, it's tacky to uh, quote your own book. So <laughs> I go to your book. I go to uh -huh. Sandy's book. I go to Reese's book. I go to other textbooks that are out there in the industry. And I cite those sources. Mm -hmm. And then I also cite uh, content outlines. Big, big important thing for the industry. I look at MCBT and B has a content outline. Um, Compta has a count content outline, and then uh, the Federation has a content outline. Hmm. <clears throat> so I use those to establish there is a standard. And people say all the time, oh, there's no consistency. I'm going, oh, yes, there is. Mm -hmm. More consist consistencies across curriculum and content than there is inconsistency. So then, so that has to be established, number one. The second thing I have to establish is that the therapist reached the standard of care. Okay. Uh, and sometimes he didn't. Uh, but it ha that has to be established through that first process. Yeah. And then I have to say this, the breach in standard led to the injury. Mm -hmm. So if you don't connect those three dots, you don't have a case. Yeah. So, um, and there's all kinds of things. And, and I, yes, I have taken, I have not taken cases because I've read the depositions and I'm saying, you don't have a case here. Mm -hmm. Because I typically only take cases. Now, when I say when, please understand no one wins. Yeah. It's costly. It's stressful. Um, and someone, even though it's not the therapist's fault, someone was injured, mm -hmm. you know? And so um, those are the things that you have to grapple with. My 
funnest cases are the ones that I have to, um, and I always go into it not knowing what I'm going to find because I think this shows more integrity. I don't go, I'm going to, I have an opinion, or I'm going to find things that supports that opinion. That's not the way to do it. It's the opposite. I don't know what's going on. So I'm going to read it and see what emerges, what pictures emerge. Um, the, most, the latest, most interesting case, they're all interesting, uh, was it was on a cruise ship. And uh, it was a, a therapist who did not speak English well. It was a second language. And a woman was in a wheelchair. And the client... Uh, claimed that the therapist, th this this is going to sound very odd, okay, but this was in the mm. demand letter, mm. uh, the complaint. It was that the therapist uh, drugged the client off the table and dropped her on the floor. Wow, the, okay. The table was unreasonably high, that was part of it, and the lotion was unreasonably slippery. Mm -hmm. So those are the three little things that I had to play with. And so I was, in, as I'm, and, I, and I intentionally read the therapist deposition last because I wanted her voice to be the last thing that I read given all the other pieces of the puzzle and I'm reading this and she's saying things like her legs they go crazy she fell out she fell out on me and I'm going I know exactly what happened she fainted mm -hmm. she experienced what you and I know was orthostatic hypertension and then so I went back and I ensure there's a ton of evidence for it and uh, and the lady even said, the therapist even said in her deposition, they're very methodical on the cruise ships. They, they have this certain routine that they do and they don't deviate from it. And and even she said, and it was a couple's massage, the, the other therapist said the same thing, uh, that after the massage, they're required to, the massage is over, get up slowly, da, 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 you know, all the little mm -hmm. ritual. As she was saying this to the client, the client was getting off the, off the table on her own, but she still stayed in the room watching this kind of unfold and then she runs over to try to grab her and then she falls on the floor well then the the client oh one more thing i was able to find a study going back to reports of research i was able to find a study that said the people who have the greatest degrees of orthostatic hypotension which is a drop in blood pressure so the greatest drops in blood pressure have something called symptom impairment they don't realize it's happening so I cited that source and um, talked about that the therapist really acted within the standard of care, which is to help the client. You know, she saw the client in trouble. Of course, humanity is going to rule mm -hmm. and she's going to try to help the client. She's not going to let it fall on her own. Um, and uh, I was able to uh, to pr protect the therapist in that case. Yeah. So are, it, are there any situations where... Let's say you're hired by one side versus the other, either the plaintiff or the defendant side, and you read the materials and let them know, like, this doesn't look good for your side. Would they keep you on as the as an expert witness in, in that instance if you're telling them, like, uh, this doesn't look good for you? No, no, they don't. Mm -hmm. uh, there was one case where uh, the the therapist had done what, now what I thought originally was a straight leg uh, stretch. You guys, mm -hmm. and that's actually an orthopedic assessment. And uh, it uh, it irritated a herniated disc. So that was what I was looking at. And I said, yeah, you probably have a case. So, but when I read the therapist's deposition, she bent the knee. Mm -hmm. That was not disclosed to me when I agreed to take the case. I said, you have a case anymore. She did the right thing. By bending mm -hmm. the knee, you're protecting the back. 
and uh, that uh, report did not get used. Yeah, <laughs> right. But uh, but again, but I do going back to kind of my my, my mantra is integrity. Uh, I, I won't lie. I won't give false evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I think therapist did something wrong, I will you know say like in the whole concept of anterior neck massage. That has been case after case after case uh, that the court has ruled in the favor of that this is substandard care because this is a well-known, well-established endangerment site. Mm -hmm. I'll get to another interesting story. So uh, I've worked on now four cases of anterior neck massage. One was carotid artery dissection, and three were brachial plexus injury. In fact, I quote one of your articles, by the way. I just thought you'd know that. Mm -hmm. Okay. About a brachial plexus injury. And in the brief depositions, oftentimes the therapist talks about trigger points and the scalings and trigger points in the SEM, mastoid. Now that's what they were doing in the anterior neck. And um, but the, and they always quote Travell and Simon's book. So I said, this is fascinating. I said, because when I was at the massage school in the 80, early 80s, we didn't talk about doing the anterior neck massage. We just knew that it was an endangerment site. But then it started happening. And then, you know, Travell's book came out in 1983, and so on and so forth. So, so there was a little bit of a, a shift there. So I thought, I wonder what the book says about it. And she doesn't recommend manual therapy at all mm-hmm. on these trigger points. Uh, she just recommends injection therapy and spray and, stretch, uh, spray and stretch. So again, so for some reason in this profession, we are teaching students to apply pressure on this area, it's causing harm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's because they they have quoted the reference wrong. And it's like, guys, wake up, read the sources you're quote you're citing and see what they say. And and again, so that's been something that has really been mind blowing to me is uh and one one of the experts in, in one of the cases said, uh, I teach this stuff and uh, I have they even took the therapist in this case. And the other expert said, do it on me, do on me what you did to the client that allegedly caused the incident. And then he says, she's doing it right. And I'm going, dude, number one, you're biased because you teach it. Mm-hmm. Number two, I said, uh, but you have to know the anatomy. That's what the thing you, I'm trying know you've heard this argument mm-hmm. before. And I was, I was able to say and win this case that no amount of anatomy knowledge changes the fact that these uh, structures can be damaged by manual pressure. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's just it's been such an eye-opening experience for me to look at things from so many different angles. Um, and I've been in the rooms where the uh, cardiologist and the neurologist are listening to these cases. And they're going, what are you massage therapists doing working on these areas? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's even they say, don't do it. Yeah. And but we don't really talk about that enough in massage schools. But um but but cases have taught me so much. And that was just a fascinating thing about again, substandard care and did the care did the substandard care lead to the injury? And in those cases, those four cases I was able to prove, yes. Yeah. You know, we seem to have had such a long string of um kind of lineage education in massage where, you know, one person learned this and they opened a school and they taught people and those people taught people. And and it doesn't seem like there's a, a really good, strong body of evidence for this kind of stuff in terms of learning some of these really 
more crucial fine points uh, because you know there is there is a pendulum swing too where you can go overboard and say like well don't touch anybody's anterior neck region at all you know and there's a big difference between touching with a very light finger touch and you know doing some myofascial type things as opposed to putting significant pressure on there and like what do you think is the best way since especially since you're a, a textbook author what do you think is the best way to teach about some of these more significant um potential endangerment sites that people may not know about, but also not freak everybody out at the at the same yeah. time and make them not do anything. I've always I've often wanted to do a class called alternatives to anterior neck massage. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so uh what I would recommend is and I love to have these conversations because we have these a lot of conferences and so we all get a chance to kind of banter back and forth. So the 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 question comes up, what is safe pressure? And two things about that. The first thing is that question will never be answered mm -hmm. because an IRB would never approve a study because it's a harm study. Mm -hmm. So that, but I could also say the second thing is that um, there has never been an adverse event related to manual lymphatic drainage. Mm -hmm. uh, and because they typically use five grams of pressure. Yeah. So I can say, I can't tell you how much pressure, you know, what's the, the, the threshold, but I can say five grams of pressure does not cause adverse events. So I think I can comfortably back that up with, with research. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think that anything more than that, mm -mm -mm. Mm -hmm. and we're really talking about skin stretching. Yeah. Uh, Tracy Walton does a really good job in her pressure scales. Have you looked at her stuff? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because she actually talks about things like uh, the how, are you using the weight of your body, the weight of your hand, are you displacing tissue? So I think she really gets kind of more of an objective way to think about pressure. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm comfortable saying skin stretching, but nothing else. Yeah, right. And you, you know, one of the points that I try to make with people is that there's there's alternative ways to get to some of those deeper tissues that you want to treat if you understand some more about kinesiology and mechanics without having to push harder into them. You know, and a lot of this has to do with, you know, understanding what those muscles do and what their actions are and how to, you know, do various other types of techniques with them. So um, hopefully that's something that will we'll just grow a body of knowledge maybe over time, which made me think about this as we were talking about, like, maybe you need to start creating a database of information that comes out of these legal cases, you know, that will help us pool together, yeah. you know, a good uh, understanding what are some of these more significant types of injuries that occur because, yeah. you know, there's an issue that I think comes about a lot, which is that some of these cases, you know, some of these instances when they're bad do end up coming into a legal case because somebody sued somebody or there's something that really happened. But, you know, there's a lot of people who will say, well, well, this, you know, treatment technique is not bad because I've never heard anybody. Nobody's ever said anything to me. And I've, always ask the question, like, if somebody gets hurt, where do they tell, you know, where do they go? Who do they tell? Because I've had a lot of clients come to me over the years and tell me they were hurt by other practitioners. And I asked them, did you do anything about it? And they said, well, no. Like, what do you do? Who do you call? And so I don't think there's really a good system in place for reporting some of these kinds of adverse events. And so maybe the, the worst ones or most significant ones end up coming into the legal case arena like the things that you're doing but there's i think there's a lot of stuff hovering around underneath the surface of injuries that happen that don't ever get reported yeah and you really are are hitting kind of a sweet spot here because 
Uh, two things I want to mention. Um, always two things. But uh, is the first is uh, in the legal cases, uh, if you don't tell the client the possible risks that actually invalidates consent. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's kind of fun to watch the depositions of internet massage debate because a good attorney will say things like, um, did you tell the client that you were in an endangerment site? Because most therapists have heard of the term. Uh, yes or no? It's usually no. So did you tell them the possible injuries? Because in my textbook, and I think Sandy's is too, uh, there's if you we list the uh, the case reports, and then the the question always comes up: uh, risk versus benefits. Uh, did is there another technique that you could have done, like kind of like what you just said, that could have been equally effective, but not put the client at risk for harm? And that's where the therapist gets busted right there. Yeah, because the answer is almost always yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but going back to what you said about the database is um, when I am writing a case report. I have to use evidence and I will always use, uh, I'm sorry, uh, expert witness report. I have to use case studies, case reports in my report. So what happens when you get a case report about a harm study, anterior neck massage, carotid artery dissection, brachial plexus injury, it's a physician who had a patient who writes the report, who submits it to a medical journal. That's all we got. Yeah. Typically, in my very first case, uh, which was a carotid artery dissection, I, I remember realizing that this case was going to be forgotten unless the physician agreed to write a report and submit it to a scientific journal. So I called. Mm-hmm. He said he didn't have time. So you're right in that yeah. uh, the, these cases, like you just said, we do have data in the case report system that talks about it. If they're there, I'll cite them in my textbook. But mm-hmm. a lot of it goes underreported. Yeah, mm. completely agree. Yeah, but, yeah, but we but we we do teach. I'm gonna I'm gonna argue this. We do teach safe practice um, procedures in school. Mm-hmm. What happens is I want to call this a rogue instructor. Let me tell you another story. So I'm I'm in Minnesota. I'm talking about some of these studies and turn some of the casework I'm doing, and this little girl raises her hand in the front. She says, Miss Susan, Miss Susan, I know this is great what you're saying, but um, but but I'm in massage school. And that's in our curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I went, really? I said, you're wrong, but I'll tell you why you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And then I go into the spiel about there's three pillars of education. Uh, the first pillar is curriculum. The second uh, pillar is instruction. And the third pillar is evaluation. I said, I'll write curriculum, and cur- curriculum comes from textbooks, and it comes from content outlines, like the MLEX and such. Mm-hmm. Internet massage is nowhere in that curriculum. Mm-hmm. What's happening is instructors may be exposing students to things that are not in the curriculum. Yeah. Well, and I know one of the ways which this has happened, because I've seen it happen and and been part of seeing those kind of transitions happen over the years is certain practitioners, especially on the continued education circuit, who may be endeavoring to, you know, give new fancy, you know, really, you know, mind blowing techniques of like doing this really kind of challenging kind of work. And they'll teach something like that. I mean, I, I remember being taught in a continued education course, some anterior neck work in the late eighties that I thought was dangerous. I mean, you know, taking and displacing the trachea to, you know, put deep pressure on the longest colon is just like, 
wow. But And then instructors go to some of these courses and they think this is really cool. We're going to teach this in our curriculum. And then they bring it back and start teaching it in the school as an entry-level program. And especially challenging when they're teaching that to people who don't really have a very good understanding of anatomy yet, nor the really specific palpation skills to be doing these kinds of things. And I think that's, again, a lot of the reasons and the ways in which this kind of stuff gets promulgated through our our education systems without having good standards of of content in some of those educational institutions. Absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, but it's a challenge that I think that we're going to be struggling with. Um, but I, I certainly hope that therapists who listen to this program kind of err on the side of caution mm-hmm. and and advocate for uh, patient safety or client safety, for sure. Yeah. I want to uh, shift gears a little bit now because we've been talking about you know learning things. And you mentioned a couple of things um, in our conversations about the importance of mentorship. And I hear that word talked about a lot. Uh, tell me a little bit about your experiences with mentorship and, and how you think that uh, is a, a good strategy and, and, and idea for people to be pursuing. Well, um, I love being mentored and I love mentoring. And uh, my very first mentors, I would have to give credit to my massage school instructors. Uh, even to this day, there's such wealth of information. Uh, Charlie Brown, Robert Stevens, Carol Kresge, Patricia Morenzi, uh, just dynamite people. Mm-hmm. And so they really helped shape who I became as a massage therapist. And later on, CE classes were another big, big, important thing for me. Um, taking Traeger was hugely important to me. Uh, infant massage training because it taught me how to uh, work with people non-verbally because mm-hmm. <laughs> they're babies. Yeah. Um, uh, I liked uh, the work of Hakomi, which is Ron Kurtz, mm-hmm. more of a body-centered psychotherapy. Uh, I loved Harold Dull's work with Watsu. Mm-hmm. Um, so those to me are the mentors at, at, from a developmental, postgraduate developmental. Uh, from an educational standpoint, I would say that uh, you and Benny Vaughn, have been huge influences for me on looking at uh, good models, good delivery systems, uh, good assessments. Uh, so that has been, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. It's really okay. shaped, because I've known you since, like I said, since the 80s. Yeah. And uh, I want to say I went to a class you did with Benny in Baton Rouge or something. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and then for my CE class, okay, so what, what happened was I didn't really hit the CE world till after I sold the massage school. And uh, I went to my very first conference. I guess how Ednet started, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. Uh, I went to my very first conference, and I booked three the first year, 2013. And I had some amazing conversations with Eric Stevenson. Taught me so much about uh, the big picture with CEs. In fact, he's the one that turned me on to the book, uh, The Courage to Teach, pa- Parker Palmer. A great book. And then uh, Felicia Brown is probably my second mentor. She, as, as far as the CE circuit goes, she really taught me a finesse and strategy and working a class. And so uh, I owe her and and Eric a, 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 and, and, and Benny, a tremendous amount of uh, uh, appreciation yeah. for what you guys have done. Uh, but I have, I do believe in when it's your, when you're called, you step up to the plate. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I have an opportunity to mentor, I often do. And I think I've never turned anybody down, uh, whether it's a Facebook question or a email 
or a phone call mm-hmm. uh, or a conference tea. Uh, so I think, and I, when I'm when I'm giving my end of the year graduation commencement speech, that I always try to lead them three things, and uh, having a sports system and a mentor before they graduate, before they launch their practice is something I really encourage them to do. Uh, Carol, Carol Kresge taught me that. Mm-hmm. She uh, she says, don't be afraid to ask some of the big guys. In fact, she was the one who contacted Jack Marr. Uh-huh. And he said, you know, he already had written his um, horse equine massage book. Yeah. Uh-huh. And she was the one that said, this is good stuff. I want to learn from you. So she went to his uh, place in Boston, around Boston, I think is where he lived. Yeah. And said, you need to be doing this to humans. And so later on, a few years later, he wrote um, Sports Massage, but it was because Carol Kresge knocked on his door and said, yeah. let me in. Right. And I so- remember a, a scene similar to that back when I was on the teaching staff at the Atlanta School of Massage, and this would be about 19, maybe 89 or something like that. And I went to the continuing education director, and I had just discovered Leon Chato's, what everybody called the blue book. You know, the very first, one of the very first ones that came out with the soft tissue manipulation book. And I was just blown away by the the content and the information in there. And I was went to the CE director. I said, like, we got to get this guy here. <laughs> just like, he's in, he's, in Lo- he's in England. He's in the UK. You're just like, how, how are we going to get? I said, just reach out to him. And I, and, and I think this was, it turned out to be one of his first, I think one of his first U.S. tours on the on the CE circuit. And we got him over to our massage school. And I was just like, it was astounding. I mean, the room was, of course, packed, standing room only above people that would come in there. But um, it was a it was a great opportunity to do exactly like you said, which is reach out to these people and, you know, you know, connect with them. And most of them really want to talk to people and really want to share things and 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 do stuff. So it's a it's a great opportunity to find people who can really take you places. And a lot of times those things come somewhere down the pike and you never know who they're going to be, when they're going to be that. You know, it's just like I didn't really know that much about who Benny Vaughn was when the school set up a, a workshop with him to come in there and the and the teaching staff at the school said, hey, you know, would you help with logistics for this course? We'll give you a free spot in the class. I'm like, sure, I'll do that. And yeah. like well, when I went in the classroom, it's like, oh my God, this is this is where I live. You know, this yeah. is where I want to be. So, and that started our very long relationship for many years of doing that. So, uh, I would agree that the the mentorship thing is just so so valuable. So valuable for me. Yeah, the internet and Zoom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's easier to reach out to people and connect with them. Yeah. And speaking of the internet, I want to know just a little bit. You mentioned this a moment ago. People, a lot of people may not know what EdNet is and that it exists. I've turned a lot of people onto that. Can you tell me, uh, tell us a little bit about what EdNet is and how that came about? Sure. So, um, 2013, mm-hmm. so I started the, uh, the lecture circuit, and I really was putting a lot of emphasis on teacher in services and creating more resources for them. Uh, we had just moved away from. Um, CDs and computer-based learning to online learning. And that was a whole, so much has happened since then. Yeah. And so uh, I wanted to have a platform for teachers because what I would do when I would go to a a convention is I would always offer a a free CE teacher in service Mm -hmm. to to get all the classroom people together and talk about things and kind of like what they did with the school summit, but on a smaller scale. Yeah. And, uh, and I would always do it for free just to have a, a networking opportunity for us. And I said, we need, to, we need to start a Facebook group. 
And I originally did not want to do it on my own. Uh, I approached the Alliance. Mm -hmm. And at that time, ignorance talking, mm -hmm. at that time, I did not understand the difference between a Facebook page and a Facebook group. Uh -huh. They're different. Yeah. So they said, oh, yeah, no problem. We'll use our Facebook page. Well, it's not a place you can share. Mm -hmm. Only the administrators can share. It's not like Whitney can ask a question or Harry yeah. can ask a question or Benny can ask a question. And I went, no offense, but no thanks. Yeah. So uh, I said, let's just start one. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it short. And so we started EdNet. Mm -hmm. And we maybe had 20 members at first. And then it started getting bigger. And then Ed Bursch, who I just adore, uh, joined in. Hmm. And he has been a great administrator. And what I just find, and then we have some rules, no, no self-promotion, and it's just a place to ask a question or share a resource or an idea, um, share lesson plans, videos hmm. that you find helpful. And I love the group, and I just find it extremely respectful. Yeah, it is absolutely. That is one of, you know, uh, with so many really challenging Facebook discussions and things like that. That is one place where you're not going to get bashed and you're not going to, you know, gonna get into um argumentative discussions with people. It's just a really good group of people that are over there. So um I would encourage um anybody who is doing anything in relating to massage manual therapy education to come on over to um Ednet E D N E T. You can just put that in your Facebook search, you know, when you search for groups and they'll, you'll find that. Uh, and it's a wonderful, wonderful service that you've created and put together for that. Because uh, I, as you know, lo love hanging out over there and sharing educational resources and asking questions and finding things over there too. So, Well, I enjoy your questions and I hope more people uh, start conversation. Yeah. Meaningful conversation. Yeah. And I think, you know, for a lot of early on massage educators, it can feel intimidating because... Most of us, probably, you know, 95% of us weren't trained as educators. You know, we became the accidental educator because um, somebody put us in the classroom and said, here, you go teach or, you know, want to go teach. But we didn't really, never really learned much about education. So it's a great opportunity to, to be able to do that in, 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 that, in that group. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So we're kind of winding down here now, but I wanted to... Um, this is one of the overall themes that I wanted to touch on. We were sort of talking about, you know, lessons learned over the years um, that we've been doing. This. And you've been doing this for so long and with so many different things that you've been doing. Um, I'm kind of curious to hear if you have any kind of um, some of the most significant or unexpected lessons that you've learned over the course of your career, whether it's through your publishing processes, teaching, you know, legal work, um, clinical practice, what have been some of the most interesting or unexpected lessons you've learned over that time? The only overarching lesson um, is would be when I'm doing textbook writing or when I'm doing legal writing, I always try to get outside my comfort zone. I always try to get another person's perspective. I like to use the word triangulation. So that's kind of been my big lesson is that I want to be able to look at it from at least two, hopefully three points of reference. I think triangulation is a navigation term. Mm -hmm. uh, like where am I in relationship to two other points of geographic contact? Yeah. So when I'm making a decision, uh, I just don't look at it from a massage therapist standpoint. I look at it from an educator standpoint. I look at it from a uh, healthcare provider, uh, physician standpoint, PT standpoint. And I think that we as a profession need to do more of that. 
is yeah. to pull other people to our tables and show us our blind spots. Mm-hmm. We should have had board certification years ago, mm-hmm. years ago. And um, we didn't. We did. We elected on a inappropriate term. I just, I mean, it's, it's a term we used, which was national certification. Board mm-hmm. certification would have been the better term even back then. But um, I think we were short-sighted. And yeah. so, um, and again, I think that's probably what I want to leave you and your um, viewers with is to to really be thinking about what is it you want to create, the, the vision, where do you want this profession to go? Um, and that should, and, and be the change you want to see in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. Become more active in the classroom, become more active in the profession, uh, volunteer more with the different organizations. Um, because we need more uh, vision and and participation, yeah. And so we can guide this where we want it to go. Wonderful. Well, you know, you're certainly an inspiration for so many practitioners. Just all the wonderful things that you've done, and I, you know, hear everybody raving about the the materials that you continue to produce and improve. Um, and so I just want to say, you know, thank you for your timeless and selfless um, contributions to our field over the years. It has been certainly an invaluable thing that's that's been moving us forward. So um, I, again, really loved uh, getting a chance to talk about this. And, you know, this is another one of those instances where, uh, you know, you and I have had a couple of sit-down conversations where we just got, you know, deep into the weeds on online education and, you know, educational theory and all that kind of stuff. And I love having those kinds of discussions. So thanks again so much for putting that effort into it and sharing things with us. If if our learner or listeners want to find out any more or reach out, yet, what's the best way for people to contact you? Uh, I have a website called Massage Passport, and they can okay. just use the contact page, or they can friend me on Facebook. I'm very responsive. Okay, and so we'll make sure to put the Massage Passport link in the show notes as well. So yeah, so find it on Facebook, and also if you're you know interested in education stuff, come on over join the EdNet group and and have <laughs> some discussions with us over there. So, um. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you, Susan, so much for sharing some some time with us today. It's been great uh, having you here and uh, always good to, to catch up with you. Thank you, Whitney. Yeah. And do remember the Thinking Practitioner podcast is supported by ABMP, the Associated Body Work and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you a package, including individual liability insurance, free continuing education, and quick reference apps, online scheduling, and payments with Pocket Suite, and much more. And ABMP CE courses, podcast, and massage and bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including those from both Till and me. Thinking practitioner listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com forward slash thinking. We want to say a thank you to all of our listeners and to our sponsors, uh, of course, as always, and to you uh, for taking time now to to listen in with us today. You can stop by our sites for the video, show notes, transcripts, and extras. You can find that over on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com and over on Till's site at advanced-trainings.com. If you have questions, comments, things you'd like to hear us talk about, just uh, record a short voice memo on your phone and you can email that to us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or you know, just send us a text message or um, text email over there as well. 
Uh, you can also find us on social media under our names, under my name at Whitney Lowe, and also under Till Luca. You can find Till's over there as well. And if you will, rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does help other people find the show. And you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen. So please do share the word and tell a friend. And thanks once again so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.